Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 18. Uh, we're going to go uh, to verse 30 today. And um, if you're just visiting or, or uh, just first time here, very glad you're with us. Um, very simply, what you're seeing here is a, a service where we love to worship Jesus. We believe that Jesus was God. We believe that Jesus was um, God's son who came and lived the life we couldn't live and died for us a death that could actually pay our debt that we was necessary to take away wrath that was towards us uh, from a holy, righteous God where we could be made new and not just be made new, but made one of his own. So we believe you're adopted into a new family when you repent of sin and turn to Jesus for your fullest salvation. And so um, Jesus is uh, the man we've been looking at. It's obviously a, a gospel about his life. Uh, Luke is the writer. Luke is writing this, and he wants to keep laying before us these truths about uh, Jesus Christ, these teachings of Jesus Christ. And I keep saying over and over, and I'm gonna keep saying it over and over. He wants to keep telling you these things, not so that you would leave knowing more about Jesus, but so that you would be inwardly transformed by the reality of who Jesus is and what he says, right? Because we see in the Bible this amazing picture that we can become one with Christ, unified with Christ. There's this union that exists when you become a child of God. And so um, Jesus comes, he preaches, he teaches, he heals, he does miraculous things all the while hoping people would understand this thing called the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God is very basically, there's a kingdom that exists, it's, it's eternal, it's perfect. There's a king of that kingdom which is Jesus and to enter that kingdom, you need a perfect king to stand in your place, in your stead, to be the righteous life you can't be, so you can be grafted in. And so he is constantly teaching what's known as this kingdom of God. And so remember, post chapter 9, his face is headed towards Jerusalem. It's fixed to go give his life um, as a ransom for many. He will uh, save sinners to himself through the ransoming, purchasing work of himself on the cross. And so um, in this section, what you're going to see here is Luke's going to tie back this section of children and the young ruler back to what you heard last week. Now, um, if you missed last week, I just want to encourage you. First, Peter, thank you for serving us so well. Uh, we were just blessed by your preaching, by you serving us the word. And he gave us in there, it ended with a parable of this Pharisee. And the Pharisee basically thinks that, you know, because he attends church all the time and gives right and acts right, that he deserves mercy. And then you see uh, the lowlife, the tax collector, who the Pharisee looks down on, actually pleading for mercy and finding it. And Jesus says, that's the guy who leads home justified. Justified is just a big theological word for he's made righteous. He's declared righteous in the sight of God. So, so here you see the low life that the Pharisee thought he was better than getting justification, being made righteous, and himself not. He came deserving the Pharisee, whereas the tax letter came undeserving. So you're going to see Luke lay this piece here to demonstrate that and fully support the argument that he just had. So here's what you got to understand when you read really anything in a gospel. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily it's all linear. It doesn't necessarily mean that it all follows in suit. But you can know through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God that every last section is placed there for a reason. Okay, so every last thing, it, it seems sometimes like, man, why are we randomly hitting this? And why are we randomly hitting this? Well, that's because God and his providence through the inspiration of these gospel writers wants to include and place every single section, word, sentence of scripture for a reason. So here we're going to see that reason where Jesus now all of a sudden, uh, Luke talks about how um, he's, they're bringing infants to him. And it might seem weird, but it's really not when you understand why Luke lays this here as support of what Jesus just had said. Verse 15 is where we're going to pick up. Uh, Luke says this, now they were bringing even infants to him. This is just people, just passerbys, people that were around, people that heard his preaching, heard his teaching. They were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. 
But Jesus called, to them, called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Okay, so here's the first thing you have to understand. This happens in the dead center of the Roman Empire. Now, a lot of you guys know, if you're familiar with your Bible, familiar with church history, you know the Roman Empire was the most long-lasting, largest empire that ever existed, right? I mean, conquering, you know, just miles and miles and miles of land and territory. And the Romans were actually known for their, um, basically, uh, abuse and abandonment of children. So um, if, a, if a child was born disabled or born with a handicap, they would actually throw it with the trash outside and then if it was picked up with the trash or they found those babies they would use them as prostitutes or slaves there was just utter wicked abuse through the Roman Empire towards children that they felt should be inferior so here Jesus is here and it's one of the loveliest things Jesus can say in this gospel story that he loved the children that he loved bringing these infants to him, that he loved welcoming them to, that, to him, even amongst an empire that would say, oh, well, we decide who's good, who's not, who's worthwhile, who's not. Does that sound like society? Sound like culture? Yet Jesus always says, no, every life is precious, every life matters. And here we have Jesus saying, no, bring these infants to me. Let me care for them, let me touch them. Um, but what also is happening further is, um, it was very common on the first birthday of Jewish families to bring their kids to a rabbi for them to bless them and pray over them. So it's likely, too, that there's probably some families nearby that were bringing their infants, bringing their children uh, to Jesus on their first birthday to, to pray for them, to, to bless them. And meanwhile, the disciples, at first you're like, you're getting on the disciples' case, like what jerks, right? Like who, do, who rebukes a man? First, who rebukes God, right? No one should do that. But who rebukes somebody who's trying to love and care for infants, and, and I, really, I really think that, and there's a lot of speculation as to why, I really think they were just trying to be good kids to their father. Like, you know, when you see that your father's tired and he's burnt out and people bother him, it's like, hey, don't bother dad. He needs his time. He needs to rest. I think that's all they were doing. Jesus is set towards Jerusalem. I'm sure you could see it on his face. I'm sure you could see his humanity kind of coming out. So they rebuke them as people are trying to press in and bring their children to them. Don't bother with Jesus. But Jesus uses this opportunity to provide a lesson on salvation. I love it. Jesus, Jesus always takes every opportunity to point out why you need him and how to come to him, right? He, he's consistently doing that throughout the Gospel of Luke. So here he says in the middle of this, don't hinder these children from coming to me. This is what it looks like to receive salvation is basically what he says. He says basically here that to receive the kingdom of God is to receive it like a child. Now, a lot of us, I'm sure you've read this before, things like this, you're going, what does Jesus mean by that? What does he mean? That, does that mean you have to be a child to actually get heaven? Does it mean you have to be like under six years old? Is there? No, that's not at all what he's saying. Um, what did Jesus mean by that? Well, just think of children. I think there's a, a number of things, but just three, very quickly. Um, first, it would mean total trust and care. Right, children, look at children, see children, look at your own children. A child's whole life is founded on trust, is it not? I mean, the, the children that we have when we're young, we never wonder when our next meal will really come. If we go to school, we know that our same comforts of home will likely be there. We're not always wondering, is dad gonna pay the electric bill? Is he gonna keep the heat on? I mean, growing up, as I was a child, as I was young, I never thought of those things. I just assumed it was mine. I assumed I'd be cared for, right? There was a total, absolute trust that my parents would care for whatever needed to be cared for. Like, that's the, that's the mind of a child. That's the heart of a child. 
The child's trust in his parents is absolute, and I believe this is what God is getting at, that our trust should be absolute in what he says and what he does. This is the way he says the way is. This is the way he says salvation is. So we come totally trusting his word. We come trusting what he says. Secondly, um, we come pleading. Right? I mean, if, if any of us have children, if you've seen children, talk about small children, um, you know that um, this is so true. Our son Jackson, right, um, he has lots of limits, right, and, and also in other areas not, but um, lots of the limits he has is to a degree, our son is three and a half years old, all Jackson can really do at the end of the day is come pleading, hoping, longing for what he wants to have. Right, I mean, he can't really, I mean, he could try to get his stool and climb up on the counter and try to get something high up on the counter if he wants to eat it because we put all his stuff far away because every time we walk in the kitchen now we find him munching and cheeks full and we're like, how'd you get that, right? So we keep having to raise it like one level higher so we can't get to it. But, but all he can really do is we have the authority to just make it higher, put it higher, put it out of his reach. So all he can do is eventually, it's, it's great, he comes in and morning for breakfast, daddy, I need chocolate chips. I'm like, chocolate chips, it's the worst breakfast, right? But he thinks it's the breakfast of chips. Champion. So he asked for it every morning, but now he can't get it. He has to ask me for it, right? Because I put it up way high on the third shelf of the cabinet so I can eat it and get fat. So, so that's what we do here. But what can he do? All he can do is plead. All he can do is beg. All he can say, can I have that? Can you give that to me? What a beautiful picture of salvation. What a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. This circle was back to the text last week. The tax collector came pleading, longing, hoping. He goes, would you be merciful to me, a sinner, Jesus? Meanwhile, the Pharisee's like, yeah, I deserve that. Look at my rap sheet, look at my works, look at my deeds, look at my rights. But children come pleading, they come desperate. They come understanding that they can only have what has to be given to them, right? Which leads me to my third point. Um, children understand that we come inheriting, right? I mean, all of us as kids, to some degree, inherit wealth, unwealth, whatever is our fathers and moms, right? I mean, the house you live in, like, you didn't buy it. You didn't come out of the womb working hard, you know, raising pensions, growing stocks. So you could purchase the house. Like, you were born and you were brought to that house, inheriting it as a gift, as a luxury from your parents' work, your parents' labor. And in the same sense, we come to Jesus feeling the weight of our sin, realizing we have to receive this estate. We have to receive the kingdom of God. It has to be purchased for us. We can't purchase it on our own. We have to inherit it, the Bible says. And who stands in our place, in our stead, and purchases it for us? It's Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says we're co-heirs with Christ. We literally inherit all that the Father has because of what Jesus did in purchasing it for us. That's an amazing, amazing truth that we've talked about a lot in the past three years together. So we come to Jesus trusting, pleading, understanding that we inherit. So this is what it likes, is like to receive the kingdom of God like a child. So, so when you became a Christian, if you can remember that, is this how you came? It, it was, whether you realize it or not. Everybody who's been regenerated, been made new through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to Jesus like a child. We feel the weight of our desperation, need to be forgiven, need to be shown mercy, realize we cannot do it. We're desperate for it. We're asking, we're hoping, we're longing. We know we can't do it on our own. We know the Bible says no work's gonna do it, no merit's gonna do it, nothing's gonna do it. Jesus has to gift it to you. He has to do it for you. So we then trust that he did that. We put our whole cards, all our chips are put in on trusting him that what he said did happen and is for us, all the promises that we do get, and then what we do is we walk in that good inheritance that he purchased for us. So that's what it means to just come and enter the kingdom of God like a child. 
That's what Jesus is saying. And then I love this. Luke provides an example in Luke 18. Really, I think this is an example of how you don't enter the kingdom of God like a child. And you're actually gonna see Jesus remind them of that. Look at verse 18. There's a ruler nearby. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler said, all these I've kept from my youth. (laughs) Goodness gracious. So here you have a ruler come up to Jesus. Now if you read Matthew's account, this ruler is young and he's really wealthy. So rich young ruler you've probably heard. So here this ruler comes up to Jesus and um, he has a question for Jesus and understand the way he addresses Jesus out of the gate is unparalleled for a Jew. Because nobody addresses a rabbi as good teacher because every rabbi would say there's nothing good except the law. Now what is awesome also very good to understand here is that you can look at every religious Jewish literature that's out there and you won't find one example of anyone calling a rabbi good teacher except here. And, and here this reveals his misunderstanding of Jesus. He comes to him and says, good teacher. Now, Jesus is not simply a good teacher, right? Jesus is God. He's not somebody who just gives some moralistic ideas for how to live, here are some skills for life, here's some helpful wisdom to get you through Monday to Sunday. Like he makes you new, he reconciles you to God, he forgives you of your sin. Jesus is God. I loved how one theologian said, Jesus is not a good man, he is the God man. Beautiful distinction. And so listen, um, growing up, you're gonna see and you're gonna hear other religions, other ideologies, other philosophies. They're all gonna put Jesus in the camp of he's a good teacher. They're gonna do just what the ruler says. Yeah, he's a good teacher. He's like Mother Teresa. He's like Gandhi, man. He's a good role model. He's a nice guy. He's not savior. He's not God, right? And that's, I say this all the time. When you're out talking to people about Jesus, right, it's all awesome until you say he's God, Right, like, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, I love Jesus, man, great teacher, yeah, good stuff, good morals, yeah, awesome guy, teacher, what, he's not a teacher? Yet I'll, I'll follow his role model, and here's the thing, you can never, ever land in that weird spot that says Jesus is just a good teacher, but he's not God, because Jesus repeatedly, over and over again, and we've been seeing it in the gospel according to Luke, calls himself God, you know what that means? That means if he's a real teacher and he claims to be God, that if he's not, he's not a good teacher, he's a nut. Like he's a loony, he should be locked up in the psych ward. (laughs) But if he is God, and all that he performs and all that he does is through the power of God himself, that the fullness of God, Colossians 1.19, indwells him, then we've got something to look at. We've got something to behold, we've got something to enjoy. And that is why, as he mentions this, Jesus says to him, don't call me good unless you think I'm God. Because only God alone is truly good. He's just affirming again his deity. Now something occurred in this ruler's life um, that may have happened to some of you. And it's a really interesting phenomenon in church life. Like just in like evangelicalism. And and here's kind of the the thing that happens is maybe um, 
You lack fulfillment in some way, shape, or form, right? So you're going through life and you're living and then uh, maybe you lack fulfillment in your career, right? There's just something missing there. There's something off there. Maybe uh, you're married and eventually you hit kind of a road where you're like just lacking fulfillment in your marriage, right? There's just, it isn't quite what you thought it would be. is isn't quite up to par or uh, maybe you thought down the road that you'd have more in the bank than you do so you're lacking fulfillment there or maybe um, it's addiction or vice, right? Maybe there's this uh, addiction that you have or this, this vice you want to control and so... You know, somewhere down the road, you're like, man, I just, I can't seem to outdo this. And so here's what we do. We go, hmm, maybe I'll try spirituality. So here's what happens. Instead of engaging with Jesus, you engage with moralism. So you go, well, okay, I don't know how I'll fix this, so uh, I'll go to church a little bit, and I'll uh, try some spiritual disciplines, and maybe I'll try to obey God with like a, at least half the list that he's given me. I'll try to do like five of the Ten Commandments, or uh, maybe I'll try to attend church more regularly, and all of a sudden, here's what happens. In your own strength, outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ, with all your vigor and all your vitality and all your strength, you're trying to annihilate vices and overcome addictions and fix all the lack of fulfillment that you feel, and here's the thing, it'll eventually and consistently always break down and leave you with benchmarks of anger and frustration if that's what you do. Because you can never fully eradicate the nature of sin, the origin of sin, not just outward actions, but who you intrinsically are as someone who mocks God, doesn't love his name, doesn't love his glory. We were all born by nature and choice, a sinner, which means that we love being God. You're gonna see he's gonna reveal in this man his utter idolatry and his utter identity that has been shifted from being found in God, the one who made him, and in what God has made and given him. And so in this man, this is what this man does. This is why you see the confusion of this ruler. I love this story. I love this this interaction with Jesus because you see in his heart what's at conflict. It's like, okay, so... I'm killing it at work, I've got my estate, I've got my job, look at my, all my achievements, I, I'm really nice to my wife, I care for my family, I'm super generous, but there's still something off here. Like how do I inherit eternal life though? Do you see that in the man? Do you see this conflict that is, that is rising up inside of him? And it's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I've obeyed all that. Yeah, I know, I've, I've got all the 10 commandments, but like I still find myself lacking. I still find my heart not being satisfied. Profound. Amazing. He's thinking, I have worth in my job. I have worth in my success. And I still find myself with space that isn't filled. Look at Jesus' response. I love Jesus' response. I always say when you read the Gospels, read Jesus, just read how he responds to people. It's just amazing. I mean, he's God, so he's got to be amazing. But yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, that's the ruler, he became very sad, for he was very rich. Here's what I love about Jesus. A lot of times, just reading it on the the surface, you think that his, his response is exactly what he says and what it has to do with, but really, Jesus' response here has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with him becoming uh, less accumulated in his stuff. Um, And that's why also you have to really let Scripture interpret Scripture because a lot of people look at this and say, oh, well, see, to inherit eternal life, Jesus says, I got to sell everything and just give everything away to the poor. 
That's how I get treasure in heaven. That's not at all how you get treasure in heaven. Jesus never one time in all the times that he clearly articulated and explicitly taught the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of scripture from Genesis run to Revelation 22. It's always about doing someone obtaining for you a salvation that you can't earn. So here, what he's doing is he's exposing what the man worships. That's all he's doing. Okay, let me just reveal what you lack then. That's another way to say, let me just reveal what you worship then. He's not trying to change the man's behavior. He's trying to change the man's God. That's what he's trying to do. And here, he says, okay, let me reveal what you worship. Go sell everything and give it to the poor. Because he knows the guy won't do it. Because he knows the guy's real God is comfort. The guy's real God is his possessions. He doesn't want Jesus. He wants what he has. He wants to build himself a kingdom. He wants to rule over it. He does not want someone else to rule over him. He does not want to submit himself to a good, holy, righteous God. So Jesus looks at him and says, okay, I'll reveal what you worship. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And I love that Jesus, this is what Jesus always does. He doesn't just go after your behavior. He always goes after your heart. And here's what's so frustrating for you and I about this. We don't like that. Because actually, if we're honest, and it might take you a minute to get there, is you actually like doing You actually want him to applaud you in your performance so that you can get some piece of glory for the salvation that you get from him. So we're all great. Okay, you want me to give more? You want me to go do this justice act? You want me to pray more? You want me to read my Bible more? You want me to attend more, be more faithful here? Yeah, I can do those things. Just don't touch my heart. Get away. Because as soon as he starts doing surgery on your heart, it stings, but it's beautiful because Jesus loves you. It's out of love that he goes at your heart because he knows that right action with no heart transformation lacks joy, lacks fullness of life, and lacks worship. So he goes at our hearts. He says, no, I want to change your heart because I change your heart, then your behavior will follow. I don't just change your behavior and make you a mannequin. I make you new. I transform you. That's the good news of the Christian gospel, right? It's not that we get to be better people. It's that we get to be made new. And the man walks away sad. Here is the tragedy of the ruler. He walks away sad, head down. Why? Because it's a worship issue. And Jesus exposed him. And Jesus showed him. That his real God was not him. He did not want to follow Jesus. He did not want to repent of sin. He did not want to turn from the idolatry that he loved and the other things that he worshipped that were lesser than Jesus. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus knows that without the transforming work of his personal work in that cross, taking wrath, going to the cross for you in your stead, literally becoming your death you should die, literally becoming your sin that you should punish with your own life. He knows that without that transforming your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he knows all you will do in your life is just exchange idols. Like without the gospel, like transforming you, all you're gonna do is just keep changing idols then. And so... One great commentator said it's not about behavior modification but worship altercation. So helpful, right? Like, like, like that, that's the goal. So let me give you, let me give you um, an example, just an easy example of how this might work itself out. Um, let's say that um, you have an issue that, that you just get very angry, okay? 
and you want to change your anger. And I've actually, I've, I've worked with this. And so you're like, I went to an anger management class. And it was great. It gave me some principles. Awesome. Helped you for a while. Helped you control that. Helped you manage that. But, but here's the thing. Now what happens? <laughs> now you worship your control because you're able to manage your anger. And everybody prefers your control over your anger. Right? Because a controlling person doesn't look really as bad as explosive outright in front of everybody anger. So let me just choose the idol that people prefer now so I don't have to look as bad. And all you guys are like, oh, okay, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm pretty good. Like, I don't cuss. I don't drink. I haven't ever been with a prostitute. Like, I'm not really wicked and bad. Like, I show up. Look at me. I'm here, right? I have my Bible open. So you exchange that for self-control or for your pride. So now you're just worshiping that. Right? You start digging around long enough and you realize that without Jesus becoming your God, you're always going to say, I'm God, I saved myself. That is why, right, in the Ten Commandments, the first one is the one that resolves all the rest. Have no other gods before me. Okay, if you, if you get number one right, then all the rest will follow. And here you have Jesus showing us that we don't just exchange idols, we need to be made new. And this man is most of us. Look at my success, look at me, look at what I have, I'm pretty awesome. That's Bergen County. Look what I've accumulated. And Jesus goes, okay. And that's your worship. That's at the altar of your heart. That's why you're discontent. I always say if you're discontent, then you'll covet. And so here, Jesus is trying to make the man new. And Jesus reveals the man's identity through his idolatry. So here's what you have to understand, just fundamentally at the ground level. Um, All of us find our worth in what we worship. And what we worship will be what defines us. Like, hands down. You can try to run from that. You can get angry at that. You can shake your fist at that. But that's just the reality. You, what you hold as highest worth in your life is what you will worship. And whatever that thing is that you worship is what will solely define you. It's what will dictate your circumstance, your joy, your mood. If you find your highest worth in your spouse, right? Marriage then that will be what you worship. And if you worship that, that will define you. So how your spouse treats you, how your spouse performs for you, what you think they should do, will either wreck your week or exalt your week. Jesus frees you from that. This is what's so great about the gospel. It actually frees you from the enslavement to the identity that you worship outside of himself. We think we're free, but really we're enslaved to that. Because Jesus is the perfect, quote unquote, spouse, right? He rescues us, affection, joy, love, mercy given, perfect. No spouse can do that. We always say in here, like, your spouse is a terrible God. You're a terrible God as a husband or a wife. You can never fulfill that. You can never uphold that. So we don't walk into marriage saying, hey, they're my God. They're going to save me. We say we've already been saved and rescued. So now I can operate in a covenant love that looks like and demonstrate and exalts the covenant love that I've received in Jesus Christ to them which is then a picture to the world of what that looks like. That's why marriage exists. It's not to make you happy, it's to make you holy, right? You hear people all the time saying that. And that is true if your worth is in your children, right? I wrestle with this, he's only three and a half. Like, man, how do you have a hold of my heart like that? But if you worship your children, then what they turn out to be and what they do and what they have and how they exist and what they live like If you worship that, it will define you and however they do and whatever they do and how they look and act and function, you'll think is a reflection of you and you'll get disgruntled and frustrated and sad and angry unless you're leaned into Jesus. Um, If, this is a great one, um, if your identity's in a pastor, 
I mean, if, if, and we see this all the time, right? People worship a pastor, they worship a man, so their whole worth is there, and he defines them. So when he bankrupts his life or does something stupid, they're out. They throw the bag in on Christianity. Why? Because their worth was in the pastor. They worship the pastor, not Jesus. Worship the senior pastor. Jesus realized he's infallible, we're fallible, and if we tank, he's still good and sovereign and always right. So it's, it's all an identity issue and all an idolatry issue, and... If your job, we can just go down the list, right? Job, career, if that's what you worship, if that's where your worth is, that will define you. So whatever happens there will make you happy, sad, exalted, downcast. And here's what ends up happening when it's more about that behavior modification than worship altercation. And I, and I mentioned this a little bit, but I want you to really see this because this is what Jesus is trying to get at with the rich ruler. Let's say you have an issue of lack of discipline or lust, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Greed. Okay, you have this issue, and you just want it to be gone. So what you think is, if with all of your inner strength, I can just overcome this and stop doing this, then I'll be free, then I'll be helpful, then I'll be good, then I'll be on my way, and Jesus is somebody I'm just gonna tack on the side, right? He'll be like my, my shotgun buddy in my car, right? He'll kind of give me some advice, but I got the wheel, I'm steering, I'm in control. So that's how a lot of us live. And so we think the gospel is some like add-on to kind of help us with already existing vices and sin. And here's what happens. If you overcome it to some degree, which a lot of people can, listen, we can avoid stuff. We can, I told you, you're really exchanging an idol. What you do is you're saying at the end of the day that I don't need God because I consistently save myself from all of these things. That takes you right back to Genesis 3, which Genesis 3 will say is the highest treason against the king of the universe, which is the very reason we all need a substitute now to be killed and slaughtered to rescue us from our sin. Do you see what you're doing? So the good damns you and the bad damns you. So some of us repent of our goodness and some of us need to repent of our badness because both, all of your goodness and exaltation in your behavior and all that you do is just as God belittling and cross mocking as you being the pagan on the bad side of the fence. Do you realize that? That's why this is such good news. It doesn't matter where you lie. It doesn't matter where your heart sits. The remedy is in the one God man, not the good man. The one who literally came and did what only God himself could do for you to make you new. And so Jesus wants this because he knows that cycle will continue over and over and over. And it's a horrible one. Some of you guys know this because you're in it. And that cycle will continue until you're humble enough like the tax collector last week to cry out and say, God, is there mercy for me? Plead and hope like a child. I realize I can't do this. I realize I have to inherit it. I can't purchase it. I have to fully trust what you're saying. Jesus wants your identity to be in him. He wanted the ruler to find his identity in him, to find his worth in him, to worship him. And he just reveals it with one simple question. And this is why until you deal with with our breaking of the first commandment, have no other gods before me. That's why throughout human history, if we do not deal with that one command, you'll never experience freedom from sin and fullness of life. You might buy the life for a season, but you'll keep hitting the wall, or you'll keep hitting the ceiling. The exhaust pipe will continue to run out until you lean into the unexhaustive Jesus Christ.
So here's my encouragement to you, just, just a few thoughts before we hit verse 24. Um, that we would reframe a bit how we view the scriptures, how we view counseling, how you view worship, the worship gathering in here. This is everything. This is, because here's the thing. If we're honest, most of us engage in all of those lanes self, selfishly, right? What does this primarily do for me, right? It's not how can I see God, it's not how can I see his character, it's not how can I see how he views me in light of who I really am as a born sinner. So, so, so here's the thing, if you walk into the scriptures, you walk into biblical counseling, or you walk into worship, or you walk into any of these lanes primarily thinking it's about magically fixing an issue you have that will magically go away, you're setting yourself up for constant disappointment. Like constantly. If you're engaged in the scriptures, going, well, this is gonna just magically fix me. Listen, the scripture, worship, counseling was never, ever intended to magically fix you or remove an issue. It was meant to introduce you to the God who dwells in infinite perfections. And as you see him, and as you chase him, and as you pursue him, and as you delight in him, you are transformed. So instead, we walk into our study of the Bible, we walk into biblical counseling, not going, okay, yeah, how can you fix my spouse? I mean, they're just a jerk, they're just a mess, right? We walk in going, man, how can I see more of God and his character? How can I see more of the patient and enduring love of God through the Son, Jesus Christ, to me, who I'm as his child, as I rebel, as I run, as I fall, as I lie, as I cheat, as I betray him daily, he continues to chase me down on my heels, grabbing me, so that I can then extend that to my spouse. Help me to see more of him, more of his character, more of his nature, more of his, more, more. When you walk into worship, do you come here going, oh man, I hope Mike Reed feeds me well today. I hope he says something good that I can take home or hope he's, you know, grabs my attention and keeps me listening and how's he gonna deal with this text today? I don't know, right? You can tell I'm not bitter at all. No, <laughs> I'm really not. So, I don't think. So, maybe that just exposed my heart. So, so here's, here's the deal. Here's the deal, though. If, if that's how you approach Sunday morning, you're going to be constantly disappointed. If you walk in going, man, God, reveal more of yourself to me. Keep my eyes open to what you want me to see about you, about your character, about what you've done in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what you want me to see about you and how you see me and my identity and my understanding of you. Help me in the songs as I sing to understand more of what you have declared and done in and through the great good news of the gospel. Man, I'm telling you, all of a sudden, you're gonna walk in freedom that you never walked in before. I promise. I put all my chips there. I see people walk in so much freedom when that's their perspective in counseling, worship, the scriptures. So we have to do hard work. We have to ask God for help in that. Because listen, all of our defaults is self. All of our defaults is serve me, make much of me. That's the fundamental sin of the universe in Genesis 3. I want to be God. Enemy says, he knows you want to be like God and you can be like him. That's why you shouldn't eat. It was a lie. And we bought the lie and it led to greater destruction. So the purpose of these things, let's ask God to help us to see him that way. Verse 24, let's keep, let's keep going. Jesus looked at him with sadness. He sees his response, I don't want you as God. I don't want your love. I don't want your affection. I'm not gonna repent. I'm not gonna turn from what I love as comfort and money and all of these things. He looks at him with sadness and says, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then those who heard it go, 
Well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. I love this. It grieves the heart of Jesus. Okay, here's what you always have to see. The face of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, for all the rap he gets, man, God just damns people to hell. Listen, the whole Bible will equally scream out, God saves. He's so sad. He's offering this ruler a chance to have him, to love him, to enjoy him, and the ruler chooses no. Jesus is offering repentance. Jesus is extending himself, saying, hey, you can have fullness of life. And it saddens Jesus Christ that the man walks away sad. Actually grieves him. He doesn't stand there and mock him. He doesn't laugh at him. He's so broken by it. The humanity of Jesus in this text. And then he says, it's hard for a rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is for many reasons. A lot of just natural reasons, I think. I think one of the most natural reasons is rich people just have the ability to just totally distract themselves to not realize what they really need, right? So if you've got a bad day, bummed out week, just buy your new house, take a vacation, just numb the emptiness. And Jesus is looking at him going, I'm so broken and burdened that you're just numb to your desperate need for me. You're blinded by all that you have and all that you think that you have built for yourself. When really all is said at the end of the day, that's all just gonna be gone and you can either have me or you can have your stuff. Your stuff won't last, but I will last. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God when you feel lonely, anxious, afraid, insecure? Just purchase a trinket. Just buy another TV. It's very hard. Wealth consumes the mind. Jesus never says to hate wealth. He says to love God and then steward your wealth. We've seen a lot of that in Luke. There's no, I mean, we've, we've talked over and over and over about that. So then he goes on to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Rabbis would often talk about this, this, this uh, metaphor of an elephant trying to fit through the eye of a needle. Actually, they'd always use an elephant because it just shows how, how unbelievably impossible something was. I think what might be going on here, though, is further. Um, when I was in Jerusalem, when I took my trip to Israel a number of years ago, when I, one of the most mind-bending, life-altering things I've ever done. Just see, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, seeing all the places he went. Um, there was a place called the Needle's Eye, and it's a gate. Now, you have the big Jerusalem gate. That's like a huge one. All the traffic walks through. I got a, I got a picture of it. Um, this is called the Needle's Eye Gate. It was literally like two feet by like five feet. So only like a small person could squeeze through. It's right next to the big gate where everything else goes through. So no camel could get through that. So really what Jesus is doing here is he's giving them an example of something that they know, and he's saying, okay, yeah, just like the needle's gate, the needle's eye, no camel again through that. It's impossible. You might, your little self, but not, what is he doing here? He's setting up the natural question from the people. Where do they all go? They all go, well, who's gonna be saved? 
right? That's what they all say. Like he's just, he's using metaphors, using analogies. He's going to set up for them the question of, well, man, okay, if this upright, moral, generous, rich guy can't get in, if I can't altercate my worship and I'm stuck in this behavior modification, if I just keep exchanging idols and I can't get rid of it, if, if I'm the guy here who can't plead out for mercy, he just gets through the list of all of these things. Who can be saved? If a camel get, can't get through that entrance of the needle's eye, I mean, how how is anyone going to inherit eternal life, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? Well, it's impossible with man. But all things are possible with God. He just said the gospel. You can't in- inherit eternal life. Nothing you do is going to give you any entrance into the kingdom of God. You are dead in your sin. How do you break free? You're dead in your sin by nature and choice. We need to be made alive, the Bible says. So what he's showing is, you're right, in one sense, it's impossible. Like you're gonna run the cycle of changing your idols, finding lacking fullness of life, lacking joy, lacking peace, constantly being angry, discontent, coveting, rinse and repeat, buying more, attaining more, searching for God in every last place outside of God himself. You're gonna keep doing that until the God of the universe intervenes. This is the good news of the incarnation, right? Christmas morning, God comes in and says, I can't, you can't do it, you can't do it. I'm gonna send somebody who can do it. And I'm gonna come and I'm gonna be your obedient life, I'm gonna be your blameless death, and I'm gonna be your righteous requirement. And you can take me and what is impossible with yourself, with man, with merits, with earnings, with achievements, with platitudes, with religion, with all of your seeking for fame and exaltation, with all of you trying to replace me on the altar of your heart with every last thing that I've made and not with me, the creator, you can have me and I will settle it in full. I'll be the one who stands in your place, in your stead, for your sin. I'll become your righteousness. I'll credit it to you. Amazing. He says, it's possible with God. So we repent of our goodness and our badness. So if you're like the ruler, he's saying this. I'm sure the ruler's there. Oh, you think by you building up all of these things on your own, you can somehow inherit eternal life? Because what did the ruler ask Jesus? What must I do? He, I believe he wanted something to do. Because he had worked himself his whole life through his own vigor achieving for what he had. So it's like, give me one more thing to do to tack onto my resume so I can stand before God and continue to boast in some way of all that I've done. Jesus goes, you don't do anything. <laughs> Essentially, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is why we gather here to be reminded that God must intervene. God has to. God must extend forgiveness. He must extend grace. The sending of Jesus Christ into human history is the message that says, I know you can't do it. I'm doing it for you. And this is why in verse 28, classic Peter. Peter's always talking. He's always there, like, ah, just like wanting to say something, wanting to question Jesus, right? Look at what Peter says, verse 28. See, Jesus, we've left our homes and followed you. <laughs> Peter, there's bad timing. You ever see that in the scriptures? This is one of them. 
Like just bad timing. Like what? I just picture Jesus going, Peter, don't you see? I mean, I've got this theological sermon that's just beautiful. It's landing so well. And you're telling me about you now? I'm actually going against that. And look at what he says to them. Truly I say to you, Peter, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter, who's always speaking out, I don't think he realizes he does it. He actually exposes his idol. <laughs> I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but hey, um, remember how we downsized our living? Remember how we left everything? Remember how some of our family members thought we were nuts? I mean, I really love following you, but how do I know that, that really loving you, submitting to you, treasuring you is really not in vain? And Jesus reminds them that when God is God, when God is God in your life, everything else works and functions right. There's no one who has treasured me above wife, brother, sister, mom, dad, that everything else does not work out right with. Jesus promises them, reminds them of the promise that when we choose God as first over everything, only then do we walk in fullness of life. And not just the life to come, but the life now. And I'm gonna say this, and I want you to, I want you to hear me right on this, because for so much I, I rail against the prosperity gospel, Jesus preaches a prosperity gospel in a sense. Not the way that heretical, unbiblical gospel, prosperity gospel preaching teachers give it. It's, it's a sense of, yes, you can have fullness of life now. You can. He repeatedly says that. It's not, sometimes I feel like it's Christians, we go, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I know, eternity, I get all that, I gotta just suffer through life now. No, you get him now. Like, you get him in your marriage now. Like, you get him in your job now. You get him in the joy of your day now. Matthew 28 still rings true for you that he's with you always, even to the end of the age. So as we walk now, we get his mercy, we get his love, we get his kindness, we get the promises of our future inheritance. We get the glory of Christ to be shining through us as his ambassadors as we call people to repentance and faith. Man, yes, in a sense, we get prosperity absolutely right now. But unlike the world says... I'm not talking about a bigger house. I'm not talking about more money in your bank or clothes. I'm talking about inwardly. I'm talking about spiritually. I'm talking about mentally. I'm talking about emotionally. Yes, it's your best life now. Absolutely it is to be a Christian. We're, we're after joy. I say this all the time. People think that Christians are prudes. We're anything but that. We love the fullness of type of pleasure and joy. And we believe it can only be found in the one who made pleasure and joy. So we take it from him. And we enjoy all that he's made and operate in that, in that way. I remember uh, reading about David Livingston. He was one of the great missionaries that went to Africa. And, and I don't know if you know his story, but he had hardships. Uh, he lost his wife, went through tons of health issues. And people at one point said to David Livingston, man, look at all the sacrifices you've made. And I've never forgotten his response. You know what he said? He said, I've never made one sacrifice in my life. In the sense of, he had Christ. To him it was, these are not sacrifices. I am gaining today 
for following Jesus and choosing him, not just in eternity to come, but right now. I'm getting the better end of the deal. Profound. I can't say that. I don't know that I have a heart like David Livingston yet that can say that. But that's what the transforming work of the gospel does in the human heart. I'm gonna end with this text and then we'll, we'll pray and take communion together. Um, in Colossians 1, I just want us to read this and think about one thing and, and close. This is why the Christian gospel is, and you've probably heard this, Jesus plus nothing is everything. I want you to think about that. That's what Jesus is laying before this ruler. The Christian gospel is Jesus plus nothing is really everything. Paul describes this aspect of Christ in his letter to the Colossians. Look at just verse 16, 17. He's talking about Jesus. For by him, this is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. (sighs) Friends, if we're honest, we take that text, but what do we do? We start adding thing after thing to this already infinitely valuable Jesus. So we say, well, being a Christian's fine, but to be really happy, to be real successful, to really get all that I want out of life, I have to add things to him. So Jesus plus wealth, Jesus plus possessions, Jesus plus accolades, Jesus plus achievements, Jesus plus a relationship, Jesus plus this marriage, Jesus plus these children, Jesus plus... And here's the thing, as we do this over and over, as soon as we've believed that, as soon as that's how we operate in our hearts, Jesus becomes only simply a way to get to heaven. That's terrible. If that's all he does, I mean, yes, he takes care of our sin problem. Yes, he makes sure we'll live eternally. But man, what about Monday to Sunday? I mean, what about when we leave this room and you start feeling the discontentment in your heart on Monday morning? What happens when the rage starts to build up as you think about a disappointment or a relationship that broke or a person that failed you or betrayed you? I mean, where's the good news of this Jesus that holds all things together then? If it's strictly salvation, you and God takes care of my sin, now I live. You don't need to add anything. All that you receive in the good news continues to walk with you and keep you together every day. I say all the time, the gospel saves me from sin every single morning I wake up, all day. It saves me from giving myself fully over, fully over. Yes, I struggle. Yes, I sin. Yes, I give way to temptation, but it prevents me from fully giving myself to worship that at the end of the day, God brings me to a place of repentance where I turn from that and say, God, help me to treasure you more, want you more, long for you more, see you more. As that frees me consistently as I walk in his grace. So we start adding to Jesus. We start telling ourselves that loving and seeing and beholding and having Jesus isn't enough. We have to be more beautiful. We have to be more rich, to be more happy, to be more secure, to have a kingdom for us to boast in. But Luke and Paul slammed the door on this idea of halvesies with Jesus. If I can say that. And he says here, hammers home the main point, All things in heaven and earth were created. All things have been created through him and for him. 
He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, so that if I could add, he might have first place in everything. That's why he does it. So, so what does Paul mean by all things, brothers and sisters? What does he mean by all things? All things, yes. He means every arena, every topic, every relationship, every family, every situation, every circumstance you find yourself in, everything's held together by the good, glorious work of Jesus who holds you and says you're mine, right? That's the mantra of the Christian heart. I am his and he is mine. I'm found, I'm secure, I'm safe. Like a child, I longed, I pleaded, I have it, I've inherited. Man, I'm, I'm good here. All so that we might give him first place in everything. Following his call to deny ourselves and our desires and give our lives to him. You know, he's the only one who can completely transform our world into what God intended it to be. And he's the only one who can completely transform our lives so that we may live the way God intended us to live. So surely to have him is to have everything. To not have him is to have nothing. And the Bible's gonna call that the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Indeed they are. Let's ask him for help. God, thank you that you make new that which cannot be made new through the right, good, glorious work of your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you that we can have you. Thank you that, God, you offer salvation. That you say repentance of sin, turning from sin in mind and heart, and choosing to treasure you, and have you above all else. To understand that we could not have salvation, mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, righteousness, that you did it all for us. God, might some receive that this morning. God, might you show us and expose our hearts a little bit this morning? Can we hear the words from you to this ruler, one thing you lack, one thing you still lack? God, expose where we find our identity, expose what we worship, expose where we put our worth so that we might walk in greater freedom and greater joy. God, would you call some to yourself this morning in your grace and your kindness with wide open arms, God. And God, would you remind those of us who are not Christians, who do not have Christ, who do not love you, that if we turn from that, that it grieves you, that it saddens you, that God, you long for people to be made right with you. God, thank you that you lead us to what is greatest and best. Father, help us to believe this week as a people that you hold all things together, that you're in all things, that you go before all things, that all things are made for you and your glory. Father, as we observe the table, as we take the Lord's Supper, might we be declaring as we come to the table, Jesus is enough for me. All I have is Jesus Christ, and that's okay. And that's glorious and that's good news for me. Help us to walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen.